Let's pray this morning for us. God, we uh, do uh, need you this morning as uh, every Sunday, as every day. Uh, We need you to come and open our ears and uh, take the mud out of our eyes and help our hearts uh, to not be so hard that they might believe. So we pray that you would do that in these little ones today and that we pray that you would do it for us. Remind us of the precious promise Uh, that you have changed our hearts uh, to be ready to receive your good word. And so do that work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good time, kids. For the rest of you, especially you young Christians and teenage theologians, some of you in this room have recently started to drive. Some of you are right on the cusp of driving, and some of you are just dreaming of the day to drive. For me, I used to dream about driving, about being on the open road with my window down and my arm out the side of the window, I guess it would be on this side, and, uh, and music blaring for the world to hear. What about you? Do you dream of driving? For those of you who have started to drive, Macy Cobb, how is it, how's it going? Yeah, that's right. I, I like the answer. Good job. Yeah, like... How's driving for the parents of uh, people who are learning how to drive? How's that going? Um, Has your mom or dad grabbed the steering wheel yet? Have they tapped the air brakes on their side of the car like wishing it could stop? I mean, Danette does that to me every day still. So like, um, have they shouted or yelled? Um, Have they cried? Uh, Maybe if you're you're a parent in this room, you've cried. I remember like what it was like for me and my dad teaching me how to drive, and it was always a uh, thrilling experience full of lots of stress because my dad feared losing power and control, and that's never easy for a parent. And it isn't just about the driving because it's actually about more than the driving. It's about like you're one step closer to kind of being on your own. And so when you start driving, what kind of license do you first get? You get a provisional license. We also call it a learner's permit. A provisional license is temporary. You actually, here in New Mexico, get two. You get a permit, which uh, you get when you're 15, and you can use as long as you're enrolled in a driver's ed program and you're riding with another licensed adult. And it allows you to drive. And then you graduate to an actual license, or a, which technically is a provisional license, and that allows you to drive without supervision, and allows you, you, but you can't drive from midnight to five, and you can't have more than one under a, uh, person under the age of 21 in the car who's not a member of your immediate family with you. Now, that rule is often broken. I know it was often broken with my kids and maybe often broken with you, Macy Cobb, but like that is a rule for a provisional license. And you have that license for a year, and as long as you don't get any tickets, you can then go and get your uh, permanent license. Now, the provisional license is temporary. It's meant to accomplish something. It's meant to get you from point A to point B, where you're not driving in point A to point B, where you're free and totally driving. It isn't meant to do more than that. You aren't meant to hold a learner's permit and drive with your parents forever. And that's good news, by the way, not just for you, no matter what your parents might tell you they think. It is good for you to be in this new car, helping your parents shuttle your siblings around, and for them to not be subject to repeated exasperations and the uh, air brake. So today, as we go into the sermon, I want you to hear 
that the law, and remember the law in the Bible, is what was given to the people of God, to Israel at Sinai. The law is the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the things that's talked about in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And I want you to hear that the law is like a provisional license. It was temporarily to be a source of life for Israel, but was always meant to lead them to a better source of freedom, that is Jesus. The law was to be the learner's permit leading them to Christ. So listen for that in the sermon today. And then also I want you to talk to your parents, and parents, you should initiate this conversation about what it was like for them when they learned how to drive. What mistakes did they make? Did they get in any accidents or receive any speeding tickets? All right, with that, let's turn our attention to God's word this morning. Let's stand for the reading of it. We're going to read from Romans chapter 7 this morning. So hear God's word from Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you, are, you also have died to the law through the, whole, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may be, bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we are to serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This morning we are going to continue uh, with Paul's images. In Romans 6, Paul's continuing to unpack his gospel. The gospel is the gift of grace given in Jesus the Son, which Paul is preaching throughout the world. And as he moves through into chapter 6 and into chapter 7, he uses this guiding image of baptism. Baptism for Paul, remember, is a change of location and thus status. You have been put into Jesus the Christ by faith, and this means that your status has changed from dead to alive. And then he adds a second image, which we talked about last week, slavery. Because you have been put into Christ and Christ has been put into you, your status has changed from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Jesus. We will all be slaves to something, But this move of being put into Christ has freed us by giving us to a new, loving, and kind master. And now in Romans 7, Paul gives us a third image. This image is being a widow. Being a widow. And so Paul says the law is like a spouse in verses 2 and 3. Now, when you get married, you take vows, They go something like this, I, Justin, take you, Danette, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance and by his sufficient grace. Now, by these vows before God and witnesses, you are then bound to a spouse. For how long? As long as you both shall live. Paul says that when you are married, you are united to this spouse until the spouse dies. 
When the spouse dies, you're free to be united to another. If you don't wait until your spouse dies and you are united to another, this is adultery. United to more than one person at the same time. This is the guiding image this morning. And the underlying assumption of this image is you have to be united or married to somebody. You have to be united or married to somebody. Now, Paul says the law is like this spouse, but your spouse has died. Your spouse has died, and you have died to it, and you are now a widow to the law in verses 2 to 4. How has the law died like a spouse? Well, the law only holds authority over humans as long as they live. It's not eternal, it's provisional. Thus the image, a wife is bound to fidelity to her husband as long as he lives. But when he dies, she is absolved of that authority, that relationship, and now she may marry another man. So Paul is saying the law has lost its claim over us, and thus we are free to transfer our allegiance, to transfer our love, to transfer our union to another. Now we all may say, yes, I I want to be free from the law. But when you're married and united to your spouse, what does it feel like to think about marrying another? Now, you might not want to answer that question, but what about the thought of not being with your spouse like forever? Now, that's not an easy thought, right? I think that is the case with the law for all of us. We like the law. We like being told what to do. We like being given boundaries. We like a clear way of earning our keep, of making our way, of being loved. Do this and live kind of thinking. We love to justify ourselves, to be proven good, to get that grade, to accomplish that thing, to say that's mine. And the law is like a spouse to all of us in that way. And it's hard for us to imagine being married to someone else when we're under and united to the law. Now, this was true for Israel, by the way. All of their traditions and their system of religion was based on the law, but they went beyond the law continually because they wanted to justify themselves. That's what we humans do. We kind of like being married to the law, even though we kind of talk bad about it all the time. We kind of like it deep down, and we really can't imagine being married to anyone else. Paul says believers in Jesus are widowed from the law and thus free to marry Christ. Now, freedom here is similar to what we said last week. One cannot, in this analogy, remain unmarried. You have to serve someone. You have to love someone. You will be faithful to someone. Either you love Christ and yield to him, or you'll yield to Adam and the law. You are married to Adam through the law, or you are married to Christ through the Spirit. But you cannot remain unmarried. So this morning, I want you to understand that point that you can't remain unmarried. You are either married to Adam through the law or you are married to Christ through the Spirit. Now with this image, Paul's argument begins to take shape. You are a widow if you are in Christ, if you've been displaced from sin and death and the law and put into Christ, you are now a widow to the law. And this is good news because the law is in cahoots with sin, verse 5. 
living in the flesh, the realm of the flesh, to be in this realm for Paul is to be dominated and controlled by the flesh. That is life in Adam. That is life trapped in sin's power. Compare this with chapter 6. We see Paul kind of comparing sin and the law, right? Sin reigns, law reigns. But you've died to sin, so you've died to the law. You're free from sin, so you are free from the law. Paul is laying up next to each other sin and law because they are in cahoots together. And our flesh and sinful passions are then, according to Paul, aroused by the law. Now, don't miss this. This is a very provocative remark that Paul is making. The law was so supposed to bring forth good fruit in people, in God's people particularly. But Paul here seems to say the opposite, and it's an outrageous claim. The letter of the law aroused our flesh to sin. This is why the letter is old, and its provincial jurisdiction over our lives has expired. We have died to sin, thus we have died to the law. And the law can only make us want to sin all the more. Now, each of my precious little darlings, when they were small, we used to put pretty things out. We, we wanted to like train the kids. At least that's what we, we learned in the, the parenting books before we actually had kids is leave all that stuff out because you're going to train those kids not to touch those things. But every time, and I mean every time, we would look at them and their sweet baby chubby cheek faces and their toe heads would look at us and they would go, we'd say, don't touch that. And what would they do? Every time they would touch it. And so what did we do? We moved all our pretty things and put them up high right? That's what we do. That's what the law does. It arouses in us. It provokes us. We're, we're all like Marty McFly being called chicken. The law is in cahoots with the flesh and the devil. So our sinful desires become inflamed. Inflamed, that, that word he's using is passionate language. Our sinful desires become inflamed by the law. And what happens? We bear fruit that leads to death. And so Paul here is using marriage as a guide, like a couple gets married, and as they are able, they produce offspring. We are married to the law, and it produces the same fruit as sin does in us, death. So Paul is still thinking here in terms of two types of humanity, Adam and Jesus the Messiah. And he understands the Christian is someone whose old man has been crucified with Messiah. And each person is thus to be seen as a composite being, like a woman married to and hence identified with a husband. And the role of the law is to cement the bond between the person who is in Adam and the old man or the old Adam to whom they are married. The law, when given to Israel, formed a bond between Israel And not God, as one might have supposed, but rather Adam. The law then appears to be part of what's wrong. Given to Israel by God, it reminds Israel constantly that it, too, is in Adam. It does not lift Israel out of the mess. It simply informs Israel that they, too, are in the mess. Now, the law enables sin to permeate the entire persona. 
it produces a pattern of behavior where death is the most proper and fitting end. And the fact that Paul is saying this to an audience that includes both Jew and God-fearing Gentiles is an incredibly shocking thing. It's like a bomb is being dropped to everything everyone knows. And this is why marriage is such an apt image, because when one is widowed, it is a life-altering, status-shifting thing. It's kind of like losing that provisional license and driving out there on your own with no parent in the seat telling you where to go or how to do it. You are free to go. And sometimes it's like overwhelming for you. In the same way, it is overwhelming to be put into a position to be a widow. Your whole status in life has been altered. And that's why Paul uses the image. He wants to drive home the point that for God's people, everything has changed. Sin and the law are in cahoots. But the good news is that you have died to the law through the body of Christ, verse 4. Because Christ has come and died, Paul brings us back to the gift. The gift that he's been using, that he's been working through, this gift language through chapter 5 and 6. He says, because Christ has come and died on the cross for your sins, this is the gospel that, Christ, that Paul is preaching, that he's banking all his hopes on. Because Christ has died, you have died. Remember the guiding image in baptism. You identify with the crucified body of Christ. In baptism, you are united to him. So in Christ, you and I have died. And if we have died, we are dead to the law, verse 1. The law is only binding on us while we are alive, but we have died to Adam. We have died to our old status, and we have been made new in Christ. Our death certificates have been passed out and signed by the coroner. We've died with Christ, and thus we are dead to the law, and now we are free to be united to Christ in resurrection life. The law maintains its hold on humanity through sin. When sin is abolished through the death of Jesus on the cross, so too are the penalties and the condemnations made by the law. Now think about that the next time you sin. Let me say that one more time. The law maintains its hold on humanity through sin. When sin is abolished through the death of Christ on the cross, so too are the penalties and condemnations made by the law. So when you sin, do you condemn yourself? Do you put yourself back into chains and bondage? That is what the law does to us, but in Christ, those chains have been broken. So in verse 6, we've died, Paul says, to that which holds us captive, and that changes everything. This is how Doug Moose says it. Recognizing the validity of the principle that death severs one's bondage to the law, you believers can understand that like this woman, you have through a death been severed from your bondage to the law and have been enabled to join be joined to another. And that's the good news. Paul recognizes this good news in verse 4. Now you belong to another. We've been released. We're free. We're free to marry another. And this one is not dead, but alive. 
You too died. You too were put to death. And the law was put to death with you. And now you are raised to new life in Christ, remarried to him. You remember the connection I made last week between baptism and marriage. Remember, baptism is this covenant ceremony. It's like a marriage where promises and vows are made. In baptism, we are raised to new marriage in Jesus Christ. So the law judges and condemns sin in us, but it also exacerbates it. The law provides handles by which sin seizes us, but we belong to a different spouse. We've been released. Something definite has been done for us. We died to the law, and now we're put on a new path. Now go back to a couple of weeks ago. We walk not in the old rut of sin, nor do we walk in the old rut of the law, but on the new path of the Spirit. We now belong to Jesus. As his bride, knowing he has died for us, his beloved. Why would we want to not live out of that love? Now here's an analogy. I heard it once through Max Licato. Once upon a time, there was a woman with a very controlling and manip- manipulative de facto partner. Every day before he went to work, he would write a long list of chores that he expected his wife to do before he returned home. Chores like vacuum the floor, wash the dishes, iron the clothes, walk the dog, fix dinner, and so forth. If she did not do those jobs every day to his satisfaction, her partner would verbally abuse her, call her lazy, useless, and sometimes prohibit her from leaving the house. So every day, this poor woman worked tirelessly and fearfully to please her partner, hoping that she did everything on the list and did it to his satisfaction. Sadly, she rarely did. And daily, she was scolded for some failure. Eventually, she left her partner and was soon married to a lovely and caring man. He worked in insurance in the city while she kept the house and managed their internet business. Her husband never wrote her a horrid list of things he expected her to do while he was at work. He never complained about what she had or had not done, but they worked out their differences together with give and take. And many years later, the woman found one of the lists that her ex-partner had written for her, complete with a dozen chores on it. She could not help but cry as she noticed that she was still doing all those things, still doing all the same routine, still working hard to keep a nice home. However, She was no longer motivated by fear of abuse, but spurned on by devotion to her husband to make their lives happy together. Now, I know the analogy is stereotypical, stay-at-home wife and all that, but please take the main point. Rules do not motivate people to do good things. What motivates people to act for the good is not fear, but love. And the shame and guilt that the law arouses in us through sin is not easily done away with. The work of sanctification, we often think of it in terms of moral improvement, but what if it's more submitting ourselves to love or to be loved? The wife, in the illustration, is still burdened by the law even after she belongs to another, but she submits herself to this new and better love of her new husband. Eventually, she will bear fruit in step with that love. Now, this is the way Dane Ortland says that we are joined to him who loves us with an unconditional love and grace and a grace that always forgives and always receives. A Savior who is ever gentle toward us, where the law was rough and shamed our ineptitude, Christ was ever gentle. 
So what Paul's saying to us today, you are now resurrected and bound to a new and better spirit by the Spirit. And the new way of the Spirit is this act of deliverance that rips believers from the tyrannical grip of the trinity of sin, death, and law and places them in the trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, union is replacement. You are now in relationship and realm with the Lord Jesus. So the law, the Torah, is not the source and substance of Christian hope. Instead, it is the life and righteousness given by the Messiah, appropriated by the Spirit. This is Paul's theology. And this new union now bears fruit. And instead of bearing fruit of death, it bears fruit for God. We see this in verses 4 to 6. Now, as a pastor, when I marry two people, I make the pronouncement. And by... And in doing so, my words and the power of God, a new status is made. One becomes two. You get that, right? Like, like there's this thing that happens with the speech act of pronouncement under God, where when they, a couple is pronounced, they become husband and wife. They walked into the church not husband and wife. They walk out of the church husband and wife. Out, and they walk out, by the way, Arm in arm, right? They're, they're not facing each other as they walk out of the church. That would be awkward and painful. But they walk out arm in arm facing the witnesses and the world. And the, the image is, is that they will go outside of the church and they will consummate their union. And that union, Lord willing, eventually will produce fruit in the world. And their life together will do the same. Now there is a truth here also, for those of you who are not married, beyond marriage. And this is what I want you to hear. Remember, Paul himself was not married. He was married to Christ. And the image remains true. This is what Paul is saying. You are bound to Christ by the Spirit. The pronouncement and the marital union is the image of that binding union and mission. This life married to this new spouse produces a better fruit, not one that leads to death, but one that leads to life. The old life in sin and under the law produced a crop of poisonous fruit, but the new life under the gospel leads to a different kind of fruit. And so I want to kind of reflect on these gifts as we close. These are the fruits that lead to life. This first one is a new object. In other words, this fruit is made not for us, but for God. The fruit that is produced, according to Paul, he says, is fruit from God. Fruit that pleases God because it originates in God by the Spirit. All the fruit that we create in this life is not created by by us. It is created as we are united to Jesus, and the Spirit binds us together with Him and produces fruit in the world. It is fruit from God, thus it is fruit for God, for His glory. It's not just that, it produces new offspring. Through baptism and faith, you have been brought into the family, defined by the crucified and risen Messiah. We have died to the law. And so you've been cut loose from the ties with which bound us to, in solidarity to the old Adam, forcing us, like a woman bound to a husband, to bear children, which in this case means death. Instead, we have been bound to Messiah in this new risen life, so that we can bear a different kind of fruit, fruit for God. So think about it this way. This comes from Michael Bird. Children are the fruit of marriage, and the union of the believer with Christ should produce a quiver of spiritual progeny. 
Matthew Black inferred that the believer is free to contract a new union with his risen Lord and obtain new progeny through this fresh marriage. The fruit of such marriage may not simply be a series of new God-honoring habits and the avoidance of vices. It could be that, but it doesn't have to just be that. Perhaps Paul also envisions the fruit of this marriage, including the birth of new believers. In the same way that Paul wanted the Romans to support his mission to Spain as part of their spiritual fruitfulness, so too we support the mission and the spread of the gospel. We too are birthing and nurturing and raising up new believers, producing a fruitful abundance of babies in Christ. It's not just new object or new offspring, it's also a new obedience I did not intend for those O's to be all part of this, by the way. Uh, I am not an alliteration guy. You know this, right? Motivation. The new obedience has a new motivation, not from the letter, but from the spirit or from the heart. Paul, Paul is saying that God changes our hearts. Here he uses the words written code and contrasts written code with the Spirit. The written code in Paul's day were the law and the interpretations of the law, the traditions of the elders, the Mishnah, the Talmud. All of these things, the written code, is what our faith becomes when the Word of God is separated from the Spirit of God. It is the difference between life and death. Now hear that. The written code is what our faith becomes when the Word of God is separated from the Spirit of God. And it's the difference between life and death. One feeds the flesh, and the other feeds the Spirit. Now friends, in our day, in our day, there is many Gospels offered with many laws. And the temptation for us as the church is to get on the train with the culture about having narrower and narrow definitions of belonging. But here Paul, just like a pinata, smashes that. And he wants to emphasize that new obedience comes from the Spirit, not better or finer or neater laws. The new way of the Spirit is the breath of God that makes new hearts that don't seek externals and extra-biblical injunctions to be righteous. No, not new workings of goodness, not coercion and slave-like obedience, but obedience from the heart. We die in Christ and we live in the Spirit, entering to new creation, kills the old self, and quickens the new self into life, into Jesus and thus unto holiness and righteousness. And our union with Christ is the conduit for life in the Spirit, moving us more and more towards this. The Spirit is given to us through the crucified body of Christ. So that makes us new ministers with a new mission. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.6, where many commentators think that this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.6, is the impetus for the book of Romans. He has made us competent as ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here Paul says we are competent, how? By the gift of grace through the Spirit, and through that gift you become a minister. And what do we give people? We don't give them law, we give them grace. What's our new mission? It's to offer the gift of grace to all people. And we have been all, not just me, all of you and me, have been made ministers of that 
mission. He has made you competent to be a minister of the, God, of the new covenant because you have received it. Because you know what it's like to be drowning in sin and the law. Because you've been freed from that, you now have something to offer anyone else who is drowning in sin and the law. You are the ministers of this covenant, and the Spirit is with you to offer life, not letter. You are not also inhabited by a spirit of a critical spirit. You're inhabited by a spirit of mutual love and shared commitment. Where there are bitter divisions, petty squabbles, violent factionalizing, the church looks less like a bride adorned for her wedding and more like a bridal party that has engaged in some kind of mixed martial arts and cage fighting. Lastly, you've been given a new discernment. Martin Luther says the distinction between law and gospel is the highest art in Christendom. So to finish today, I want to end with this idea. I want to help us distinguish between law and gospel. It's a handy guide. comes from a guy named Will McDavid. First, how do you distinguish your old spouse from the new? One, you listen for a distortion of the commandment. Anytime a hard commandment is softened, such as be perfect to just do your best, we we're looking to the law and not the gospel for life. How many of us do that? We soften the commandment for ourselves or our neighbors, thinking that we are being gracious, but in fact, we are, get, we are living under the law. Two, discern the balance of agency. If you're in charge of making it happen, it is misguided law. If God is in charge, it is gospel. If it's a mixture, it's law. Agency does not come from us. It doesn't come from your Enneagram. It doesn't come from your gifts. It comes from God. That's gospel. Three, look for honesty. If you or others either seem A-OK or struggling but, then likely it's because the old Adam is alive and well. If people are open and honest about their problems, such freedom shows that the gospel is at work. Here at City Press, one of our aims and hopes, both from a sessional standpoint and from a staff standpoint, is to always be a people who are vulnerable with you about our failings. Now that vulnerability is not to make you feel a cloud over us or the church, but instead to say, hey, we're the lead repenters in the room. Our main job for you is to lead the way in our repentance. So the gospel leads and not law. Four, watch for exhaustion. If the yoke is hard and the burden is heavy week after week, then the letter is probably overpowering the spirit. I want you to hear what, uh, how um, Dane Ortland says this. Sorry, I have to go back up to find it. A yoke is the heavy crossbar laid on an oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for it's a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shouting, shout back, sputtering, No way! Not me! This is hard enough, drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. 
And the good news this morning is you don't need to, be un- to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, Jesus Christ's desire is that you find rest and that that you come in out of the storm. And that desire outstrips even your own. Five. You should be happy. I'm giving you a list. When was the last time I gave you a list? In a sermon about the law, I'm giving you a list. Isn't that ironic? Examine the language. If you hear if, then, wouldn't it be nice? We should all, or anything else that smacks of the imperative voice, it is implicit works salvation. If you hear instead, first, particularly, the indicative voice, God is, we are, or God will, then it is probably gospel. The indicative always leads the imperative. Six, watch for the view of human nature or anthropology. If human willpower, strength, or effort are being lauded or appealed to, it is law. High anthropology means low Christology, and low anthropology means high Christology. And seven, keep an eye out for the Roman Galatian effect. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it, is really, if it really was for nothing, well, then God does supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by you believing what you have heard. I love this idea comes from Juno Linebaugh. God doesn't serve mixed drinks. He serves two distinct shots, one of law and one of gospel. Should law and gospel get mixed together, the result is like a Bud Light chilada. It might feel more convenient, but it's hardly satisfying. When served separately, however, both are allowed to complete their distinct and separate functions. The law's work is necessary but discomforting. It goes down like hundred-proof tequila. It empties out our insides. It leaves one's face puckered. The gospel, on the other hand, goes down like top-shelf whiskey. It soothes the soul, it elevates, and it leaves you better off than you were before. And while there are plenty of things to say about each of us, God's word always ends with favor. The gospel's purpose is not to tee up for a backhanded slight of judgment. It gives what it imposes. That's what makes it gospel, and it always gets the last word. That's why I love the pronouncement. I now present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Yada Yada. Law might have been an earlier dance partner, but now... By the pronouncement of God, you've been bound to another. And the gospel says to you, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. You are married to Christ. It's legal. It's personal. It's comprehensive. It's identity shaping. No part of your life is to remain unaffected. And because you are married to Christ, we love him because he first loved us. 
There's duty and obligation, but it's all motivated by grace and love. Indicative leads imperative. And the possibility of intimacy, of acceptance, of being known, of being secure, and the loss of freedom is actually made, is, is, comes by being made truly free. And it's a joy and not a burden, just like marriage. We are the bride of Christ. And we all have the same relationship with Christ. And we've been put on mission, bride and groom, locked arms with Christ, headed out in the world. And so, my charge to you this morning, in the indicative of grace, be who you are. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would be who we are. We are married to you. You are our husband, and our whole life has been changed. We are not under law, but under grace. So help us, Lord, to live under that this morning. As we come to the table, if we taste the freedom in life that's offered in you, I pray that we would be encouraged to once again believe this to be true. That Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. And we have been married to Christ. Help us to be who we are. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved husband. Amen.